So you might remember if you were here last week that uh, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples and, and he's like, who, do, who does everyone think that I am? And they give some answers and then he says, who do you think that I am? And Peter stands up on behalf of the group and says, you are the Christ. Like you, you are the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting on. Then he goes on to tell them that he's going to um, suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and be rejected by them, be handed over to them to be killed, and then he will raise from the dead three, three days later. Peter, uh, being the spokesman of the group, pulls him aside and starts to rebuke him because that's not, that's not their understanding of, of the Messiah. That's what he just described is what fake messiahs do. What he just described is what happens when you, uh, when you fail. And so Jesus kind of puts him in his place. And then he, he speaks to all his disciples and he draws the line in the sand. So let's look at, look at that last little bit in chapter 8 from last week. And then we'll get into the text for today. Verse 31, chapter 8. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, or accuser, for you are not setting your mind on things of God but on the things of man. That was last week. Then, verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then verse 1 of chapter 9. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. So like I said, this is a hard passage. So let's look at it a little more closely. Starting in verse 34, this is the line in the sand that he draws. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. By saying anyone, this was, this was new for a rabbi. And it wasn't very typical. So when I say that he, like, he says anyone can cross the line that he's drawing, he really means anyone. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're Jew, Jewish or, or Gentile. It doesn't matter uh, if you're, like, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. I could list all kinds of things. Nothing matters. This is the line that you may cross but you need to know what it means to actually come and follow after me. So, so if any of, you, any of you want to do it, this is what it requires. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. So self-denial. Um, I'm, during the Lenten season, I preached on this idea a lot. So if you want a more extensive explanation of all that stuff, 
You can go back and listen to the podcast, but deny himself means exactly what you think it means. It's self-denial. It's, it's saying no to, what, to you insisting on your own way. It's saying no to your, your preferences, your desires, your comfort, your, um, your safety, your everything, that that is no longer what is driving you into how you make your decisions and how you live your life. It's no to, no to me and yes to him. Take up your cross is, uh, that's, was, an, an ob- that was a, a poetic way of saying be obedient no matter what it's going to cost you. That criminals who were crucified, they carried their own crosses to, to the hill. Um, so to take up the cross is Jesus saying, that's what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to I'm gonna have to be obedient to the point where I'm willing to take up this cross and go and die because that's what God has for me. And so he is inviting them not only to say no to themselves, but to actually just go ahead and just die. Follow me to the cross. When I die, you die. You die to yourself. You die to sin. You die to all those things. But it's an invitation to cross the line into death. And then he says, and just follow me. That's a, that's a like, follow me around like my disciples do. Imitate me. Become like me. Learn to talk like me and think like me. And join me in what God is doing. So that's, that's the line. He says, if you want to cross over this line, you've got to be willing to say no to yourself and yes, yes to God's plans for you no matter what it costs. And then you just got to put in the work of every day, like following me into whatever, whatever God has for you. Now, this is not the gospel that preaches at the stadium crusade, right? Like the gospel that, that preaches at the stadium crusade is, do you want to go to hell when you die? If you don't, then you need to listen up. And granted, that is a, that's an important thing. But this is not something that preaches really well. This is something that people look at and they think that you're crazy. Like, why would you sign up for this? It's so countercultural. It's so counterintuitive to how we are trained that it just sounds like crazy talk un- until something begins to burn inside of you, right? Like, we've, we've all been there. Until something, like, begins to draw you and you realize that that is actually what living really entails. That the call to come and die is really the call to come and live. That in order to be resurrected, first you have to die. Jesus had to die on the cross to be raised on Sunday. You and I had to die on the cross to be raised to walk in newness of life with him. For there to be a resurrection, there has to be a death. And that's what he is saying. Come over this line if you're willing to let go of all of it. So, what that means, in short, is that really we have to come to terms with the fact that life was never meant to be about me or you. That was not the that was not the the created order. That wasn't God's plan uh, to create us in His image and, and then have us be con- convinced that we are all like equals with God. That was not the plan. But sin came in and busted that up and shifted our focus away from God being the center of the Garden of Eden. Instead of Him and His presence with them, then it became all about Adam and Eve. And even though they were ashamed of what they had done, uh, they were still the center of their little universe. And so we have been born into that same kind of world. 
And so even though we were, we were not created to have a self-centered life, but a God-centered life, we have been born into a self-centered world, so we're trained to make our lives about ourselves. It's, it's our natural default. And it's constant, and it's everywhere. And basically that Godward focus was hijacked by sin, and we've been trained and learned to think that it's all about us, what we want and what we desire, what we wish. It's all about a life of comfort, a life that's free from worry and stress and problems and whatever we have to do to get that comfortable, safe, nice, neat little life where we're willing to do it. Um, What he's trying to help us see in this passage is that that is actually what bondage looks like. That is your true self in chains. And he's inviting them to cross the line out of that life through death into real life where you are free from this obsession with self and free to be who you were meant to be the whole time, which is someone who was made in the image of God and sees him clearly and enjoys him and loves him forever and receives his love and his enjoyment of you forever. And we get to do that together. Like that's, that's what's real and what's true. And yet the world we're born into has the opposite focus on us. So what we have to do is we have to take that mindset, that heart set, that that thing that we're trained to think and believe, and that has to be put to death so that he can raise it from the dead, so that our mindset and the way that we approach life can be raised to walk in newness just like him. So here is the call to discipleship, which is a call to die. And in that death, we get to actually live. And so the disciples thought for the Messiah to die, that meant failure. But Jesus was like, no, that actually means success. That's actually the goal, is for him to die. And for us to die with him. And for what rises from the dead to be the pure, perfect, beautiful version of us that God created us with. So... There's this one death that happens at, at salvation when, when you and, and I, like anyone who is a Christian, whenever you realize that, that you are in that bondage and the only way to be free from it is to follow Jesus into the cross and to die and that something begins to stir in you, there is a, there is a death to self that happens in salvation. That when Jesus died, I died. When Jesus was raised, I was raised. There's that, there's that association and identification with him. And then once you are resurrected, then there's this, there are these daily deaths that happen. That we're constantly putting to death all these little things about ourselves that, that tend to become so important. And so in Luke's gospel, he, he includes, uh, he says, deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. There's this repetitive thing. And so there's, the, there's the, the big death to self that happens in salvation. But once we're raised, there are all these little things that have to still be put to death. And that's what he's inviting us into. He's inviting us into this life where that is happening all the time. Jesus is saying, let me walk you through your life. Let me walk you through the good stuff and the really bad stuff. Let, like, get behind me. I'm going to walk through your life and I'm going to be in front of you and to your left and to your right and behind you and you'll be hemmed in. Um, so here's this, this really big, massive line in the sand that was probably not what they were hoping to hear. 
Like I said last week, he, he will, is not always going to be the Messiah that you want, but he will always be the Messiah that you need. You may not want those things initially, but you need to cross that line. And then, so after he makes that statement, he, he makes four other statements that support and explain and give reasons why that big call to discipleship is what it is. And so as hard as that one is, he just keeps making it more like, like weighty, but it becomes more and more convincing as you go, as you watch. There's four, four statements. Um, I saw it referred to as the four fours because they all start with the word four in this version. So um, the first one, verse 35. So he gives the call and then he says, for whoever would save his life would lose, will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. All right, well, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So he's, he's expressing like this, like we have, to, we have to think of life in two, kind of in two different ways. Um, you can put whatever terms to it that you want. Um, you might would think of like your like temporal life versus your eternal life. You know, like your your life in in this body in this like earth suit that is going to at some point expire, and then there's then you will live on past that. So there's like the temporary life here. There's eternal life. You can think of it of life in the body and life, or maybe the soul. Um, I'm going to talk in terms of like your earthly life and your heavenly life, um, just to kind of give some like consistency to it. But he's speaking in those two different ways. So if you look at the verse again, he's saying whoever would save his earthly life will lose it. Whoever like holds tightly to his earthly life and insists on his own way, refuses to to deny himself, refuses to be obedient, especially if it makes you uncomfortable or like is awkward in some way or whatever, and refuses to really follow and transform after Jesus, whoever will hold on to that and try to save that life is actually going to lose all of it. Whoever loses that life, for his sake and for the, for the sake of this good news he's bringing them, it's actually going to save it. If you are, are closed-fisted with your life here on the earth, then you will stay in bondage to that. But if you are open-handed with your life on the earth, then this life will be blessed and your eternal life will be blessed because you'll be with him and not separate from him. So, if you submit your earthly life to death in Christ, you actually gain everything. And it seems strange, like how can, you, how can you save something by losing it? Well, then he gives them another statement. Verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, we're trained to try and gain the whole world. That's, that's the world that we live in. That's the education system we grew up in. That is like a performance-driven society that we start to learn when we're very young. That's all about how you perform. And then you're rewarded at some point. 
And we're trying to gain and gain and gain all these things in this, this busted and broken world. And yet, to what end? What's the, what's the point when none of that carries on? So sin has shifted our focus from God onto ourselves, and Jesus is shifting it back. He's saying, hey, you need to pay attention to your soul. Gaining the world and all that kind of, you know, whatever. But your soul, like that's the most important thing about you. That's the most important thing that you need to be paying attention to. That's why I'm inviting you to cross this line in the sand because I care about your soul. That's what I came here to do. The Messiah has not come to restore the nation of Israel. The Messiah has come to restore the souls of men. He's saying that's what I'm here to do. But first you have to understand that your soul needs restoration. That's what he's trying to get across to them. Verse 37. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Nothing you bring to the table. Nothing, nothing that you can offer is, is going to equate with the human soul. It, just, it doesn't work that way. You can, you can gain all of that and then still be left empty-handed. And so what he's pointing them toward is there, there is a like fork in the road. There's a watershed moment that's coming. At the end of this earthly life, when all that you will carry forward is your faith. And it's either going to be faith in Jesus or faith in yourself. You cannot give anything in exchange for your soul. I cannot give anything in exchange for my soul or for anyone else's soul. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of, of his Father with the holy angels. It's like if you want to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul then you go for it. But you need to know that that relational rejection is going to be reciprocated at some point. If you don't want to cross this line and you want to stay on that side and you want to embrace and invest in and soak up everything about this busted, broken generation that you live in, you have the freedom to do that. But you need to know that at the end of it all, your soul will still be dead. You will still be lifeless in your true self. That Jesus is proudly following the Father into obedience. He's proudly going to the cross to please and honor His Father. He's proudly going to the cross taking your sins and my sins upon Himself. And saying, I will take these to the grave with me so that they can be free. He is doing that with his head held high. With love in, in, his, in his heart and tears in his eyes. And he is so proud of that. And he says, I want you to be proud of it too. 
I want you to love it. I want you to boast in it. I want you to, to, to bring every boasting that you have under this greater boasting that everything good in your life is because Jesus has bought it for you and given it to you. I want you to own it and love it and let it drive everything that you do. The focus of this verse, it's easy to get caught up in the fact that of like God being ashamed of you. But God's not a, God is proud of you. He, doesn't, he does not want to, um, to leave you on the other side of that, that line in the sand with a dead soul. But he's also not going to force you to come across. It's a, it's a step of faith. It is, it is a relationship. Notice that the language is relational. It's not mechanical. You can think of the gospel as, as you're on trial for sin and Jesus pays the debt. That's so impersonal to me. Here he's saying, like, no, it's about being proud. It's about, like, love. It's about this relationship between us. And then he says in verse 1, Truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. This is a reference to the resurrection. He's standing there, this line drawn in the sand that I have completely made up, but just go with me, okay? If you're like, where is that in the Bible? It's not in there. There's this line in the sand. He's telling them, some of you standing here, you're going to watch this all unfold. And you're going to watch the kingdom of God show up in in a way that is more powerful than anything that you've ever seen. In other words, you don't have to die to see heaven and earth together. You don't have to wait for that. You're going to watch it unfold. But first, the Messiah has to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests. He has to suffer and he has to die in order to be raised. And once you see it, you're going to be, you're going to be blown away and you're going, to, you're going to see that I'm right. You're going to see that this crazy line in the sand that I have driven, this, this insane thing that I am calling you to is actually the way, the truth, the life. It's the way of the Father. You, almost like he's being like, give me some time. I'll prove it to you. So when you, when you think about the support texts, when you think about him saying, if you, if you hold too closely to this life, you're going to lose it. If you let go of this life, you're actually going to save it because you can gain the whole world, but yet your soul is what matters. Why would you, why would you accumulate all this, but yet give up the one thing that matters? There's nothing you can give in exchange for you. And Jesus is proudly offering this to you and inviting you into it. And you just wait and see the resurrected Savior. It's, it's going to be incredible that heaven and earth are not not at all far away from each other. That all makes a little bit of sense. Go, let's go back again and look at verse 34. With that much sub-strengthening information... It makes sense why he would call to the crowd and say to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That the way for this, this brokenness that you carry, the way, for, the way out of that bondage is for it to die. It is for you to die. 
And then you'll find that that's actually how you live. And you live freely and you live forever. So does it cost us? Absolutely. There's a huge cost to step over that line. He wants them to count it. He wants them to know what is expected, but also all of the benefit. So in a sense, all he's, he's saying is like, really all you have to do is let go of the lie that you have been sold your whole lives. That this is all there is. That this life, is this is it. it it's a lie. It's the shiny costume jewelry that we're settling for. In other words, everything that is real, that's what's at stake. Everything real about you and me, that's what's at stake. Everything that is temporary, everything that can be stolen or burned or can flood or can rust or um, like a world war could set off and like we lose it all and there's so many different things that can happen. All of those things, those things, those things are in a different category, but the real you, the real me, that is what is at stake. In Hebrews 11, it says this about Moses. Verse 24 says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is giving us the antidote, and he's helping us to look forward. Moses figured it out. He says, all this, all the pleasures of sin is so fleeting and empty and just dumb. I'd rather be identified with the people of God than just keep saying yes to all this emptiness. And whatever it costs me to be one with Christ is of greater wealth than anything that the world could offer. He had all the treasures of Egypt right at his fingertips and he realized it's all empty compared to his soul. And so for us, um, he's basically just calling us out of that across this line into life. So I was thinking about like, okay, well that's, you know, that's a weighty text. Like what, what are we supposed to do with that? You know, because I, I believe that probably a lot of us in this room are, are Christians. We have said yes to Jesus. We have, we have died that, that big death with him. We have been raised to walk in new life. We have his spirit. Like uh, We said yes to him. If you are here and you have not said yes to him, you don't need to leave today without talking to somebody about that. Um, we will stay as long as we need to stay, but you don't need to leave wondering that. But my assumption is that most of us here are, are Christians. So if this is more, you're saying like, no, no, I know what the line in the sand is. I've crossed that already. I think verse uh, 30, 
well, whatever it is. Sorry, my notes. Verse 35. Look at verse 35. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I think it's worth asking ourselves, what's my, what's my energy being poured into? Like the, the energy of my life, my, my mental, emotional, financial, physical, uh, like all the different things about me, the, the things that are draining the battery every day. What, what is going into more for me? Gaining the world or the nurturing and development of my soul? Like what, what should be happening there? And I, uh, I don't know how you would answer it. I don't really know how I would answer it today, to tell you the truth. But I think it's worth asking, not, not because I'm worried that something's going to happen and my salvation is going to be taken away from me and I'm going to end up forfeiting my soul. I, I believe that the Bible teaches that like, when you are saved, you are saved. Like, God is keeping you. It's not, it's not about, am I going to heaven or hell? It's, it's about, am I living in the fullness of Christ now, in this, like, here now? Like, am I living in heaven at the moment? What is my energy going into? Now, when, it, when you see the phrase gain the world, there's probably some obvious things that, that come to mind. Um, it's easy to think about career or money or possessions. You know, like, are we, are we, do we have these like, ambitions and aspirations that we're, we're just trying to like, accumulate more and more and more, you know, status and all that stuff? Then there's some more subtle ones. I think that the, the approval of man is, like a, is a commodity. Uh, and at least in our mind, like that's something that we are trying to accumulate more of and more and more approval. Um, our appearance gets a lot of energy, right? A ton of focus for us. Um, the like, like uh, relational connections with people and, and friendships and social things and um, like this kind of like social acceptance. So the, there are some really obvious things of gaining the world and there's some more subtle things of gaining the world, but they're so draining on us, you know? It's why we're stressed and why we're tired and why we're anxious and why we're down and up. And um, like we're just so like pushed around so easily, I think, because gaining the world is 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 a default mode for us so much. I'm not saying that any of those things are inherently evil. You know, I'm not saying like quit your job and give away all your stuff and you know whatever. Be obedient with all those things. But it's not that they're inherently evil, but they are all bent Right, like in the world we live in, they're all they're all a little off because sin has made them that way. We relate to them very strangely, um, and we default to that in a really like weird way sometimes. And so, can you gain the world and not forfeit your soul? Sure, of course. You can have stuff. You can have success. You can have. Like you can have whatever and also have your soul be like deepened and sharpened and all that kind of stuff. But recognize that you're, you only have so much capacity. I only have so much capacity. There's only so much energy that's being poured into things. And since much of gaining the world is about kind of like this underlying idea about just trying to be comfortable and safe 
and uh, low risk, you know, and all that kind of stuff. We have to be aware that Jesus is sort of pointing out our tendencies a little bit. Especially the fact that in our world, we are, we are easily convinced that you can just sell out to get those things. Like, it's okay, you can sell out. Your soul's secure. Put the energy into gaining the world, into gaining comfort and stuff and all these kind of things. And it's okay if you have to sell out Jesus a little bit. Like, that's, that's the lie that's woven into things. And here's Jesus inviting us into a world of sacrifice and a world of suffering. Where no matter if you gain the world or lose the world, you're fine because he is enough for you. That's what he's inviting you into. And so the energy of our lives has to be sunk into the nurturing and development of our souls. Gaining, losing the world, that's like a detail that's different for all of us across this room, that God has different things and different categories of life for all of us. Uh, those, all, those things all have their place, but the big energy and focus of your life is the part of you that will carry on. That's a part of what he is saying. It's the nurturing and the development of the soul. And so know that that by crossing that line and by those daily deaths, he's calling you to sacrifice and to suffer. He's making you into the kind of person that no matter matter what the ups and downs of life bring to you, you're, you're okay. Because you know whose you are. So those, that big initial death and salvation isn't followed by a bunch of little deaths, like these daily deaths. We have to put these things to death in us over and over and over and over again. Like, like just going off the list I just gave, like your career, you have to put your, like, you have to put your career to death. Like your aspirations, your opinions, your... Like, you're, like, um, instead of self-denial, you're, like, self-promoting side of you. Your insistence on knowing what's right and best for your own life in regard to career, you have to put that to death so that Jesus can raise it to life. And then you have a resurrected view of your career. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah? No? You have to take your view of money and put it to death. You have to be open-handed about that and say, Lord, will you, will you put like will you put my view of my opinion of this to death? Then will you raise it to life so there is a resurrected view and understanding of what money needs to be like for me? See? The approval of man needs to be put to death. Your social acceptance needs to be put to death. Your possessions need to be put to death. So that Jesus breathes his life into them. And then you have this pure and holy understanding of what's going on. It's really just us saying at the the end of the day, I think I know what's best for my money, but really Jesus knows what's best. So how about my opinion dies and his opinion rises from the dead. And that becomes the guiding principle for my life. It's this humility that says, I, I don't really know. I think I know, but I, I really just don't know. I was thinking a lot about um, 
those like resurrections that, that, that have to happen. And, and that like, like if that was the repetitive part of our lives is when you realize something is, something is like, has got a hold of you. You're like, well, I just, I just got to put it to death. We wake up every day and we realize that, that today I can still default to my old fake self. So I got to put this to death so that Jesus can raise it from the dead so that I can walk in the newness of life in these things today. And I really thought a lot about our parents in the room, the parents of young kids, because you start to learn this when you're little. A lot of, a lot of times, you know, you guys who are adults who are kind of working your way through this, um, you learned the false narrative when you were young. You're learning the true narrative now that you're older. So I was thinking about our, our kids here at Living Hope and how now's the time for them to, they need to learn this the right way. Because it's terrible to have to relearn something. Now is when they learn it. And parents, your kids are in these environments, like all these different environments, where that game the world earning performance narrative is like everywhere. And it's everywhere at younger and younger ages now. You know, we have stressed out kindergartners, which we shouldn't have, but we do. And so they're in these, they're in these performance driven environments at school and with sports and with music and with dance and with their friends and with all these things and all these different environments are out there and there is this narrative of gaining the world that is in every one of them. And parents, let me encourage you. You get to, at the, with all those different experiences, you get to sit down and look them in the eye and you get to tell them what's true about them and what's true about Jesus And you get to help them in the right way figure out how to navigate the ups and downs of all those things while not forfeiting their souls. That's your primary goal, is that their souls would not be forfeited. That they could gain and lose the world and whatever, however that needs to all happen, but their souls are nurtured and growing and stronger every day. That's your goal. Your goal is not for them to be the best baseball player the best uh, in, in the ballet troupe, the, not to make the honor roll. Those, that's not your primary stuff. Those are all good things and all that kind of stuff. But your primary goal as a Christian parent is to develop children who have a deep love for Jesus. That's it. And you can do it. Like Jesus has entrusted uh, those kids to you. He believes in you and he will empower you to do this. You, you got to talk with them about everything. You got to process all those ups and downs and all those experiences, and and you, you have to be the one speaking words of life into them. We, as your church, we're going to come alongside you and support you and, and echo those things. So hopefully, they have two environments where they're hearing the truth all the time: your home and our church. And together, we can outweigh all that other stuff that's out there. But they won't get that if you're not doing it yourself. That's a part of why we walk in community as a church family is to make sure that, that the adults in their lives are doing that. And as they watch us do it, they're going to pick up on it. And then when it's applied in their own lives, uh, it's going to blow their minds. And they're, they're going to grow up in this in world where it's far more natural for them to say no to themselves and yes to the Lord and follow after Jesus and whatever it is that they're doing. And so be encouraged, but also be challenged by like the weight of what this means. And so that's not just for parents in the room though. That's for, that's for all of us. They need the, the full environment, all of us saying, 
I'm going to cross over that line that Jesus drew in the sand, not only initially in salvation, but I'm going to do that every day. I'm going to find the things in my life that, that, that need to be put to death. And I'm going to just ask, ask him to let my opinions and my insistence on knowing my, my own best way that all that dies and ask him to raise to life his perspective so I can walk in it and I can follow him in it. So how do you do it? Here, here we go. I'll close real fast. How do you do this? Well, here's what Paul said, Philippians 4, 6 and 7. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, you pray and you tell him and you ask him that you you have to be humble to pray and ask him to supply. So you humble yourself and you say, God, will, will will you help me put this to death? And then will you raise it to life? How do you know where, how you know where to start? Here's two categories I'll give you. One, what are the things that you're praying about? What are the things that, that you are actively praying about? And make sure that, that death is a part of what you're praying. Make sure that you are, are, are not just uh, saying, oh, Lord, just tell me what to do with this. Give me some guidance here. Make sure that you're also saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like that has to be a part of it. That is a, a death prayer. I'm putting, I'm insisting on my own way as being put to death in this. Will you raise it to walk in new life? So what are you praying about? Second thing, what are you not praying about? You know, what are you just impulsively, instinctively just going through your life making decisions about? What are you not bringing to the Lord and inviting him into? Um, that's where I would start. What am I praying about to make sure that that's in there? And then two, what am I just avoiding? It's probably something you're keeping from him on purpose. Bring that before the Lord and invite him into it. And you'll know that it is resurrected because it'll start to smell like Jesus. Paul talks about the aroma of Christ bringing life. You'll know. You'll know when you start to think like Christ about these different things. Because you know the smell of Jesus. You also know the smell of death. And when something is bringing death to you and death to your family, you know it. But when something is bringing life, you know that as well. So I, I know this is a long sermon, and I don't apologize because what good would that do? <laughs> but I, it's important. It's important, and I hope that it has been helpful to you. Um, we have a, a rhythm of response here at Living Hope. Um, we we pray, and so if you want to pray where you are, that's great. If you want to come and kneel at these steps and pray, that's awesome. We'll have some elders and staff on the front row. If you want to pray, someone to pray with you about something, or uh, if you want to talk about a relationship with Jesus, um, you can sing. Um, you can give. We have giving stations on the corners over here where you can give financially or you can give a prayer request. Um, we'll have two communion st- stations as well. Um, if you, if stepping up to the, the Lord's Supper is going to help you have this tangible reminder that Jesus has invited you across that line and you have said yes to him, that you take the bread and you dip it in the juice and you, you take it yourself. You're welcome in our line. You don't have to be a member of this church. 
you do have to have said yes to Jesus and want what he has for you. Um, so we'll sing, we'll pray, we'll receive communion, um, maybe we'll give. All those things will be happening. So if you're here for the first time and people are moving around, it's on purpose. It's okay. We just want to give a few options of response because there, there's no telling what God has stirred in you. Um, and so let's stand together and let me pray for us. And we'll kind of go through those rhythms for a few minutes before we close. Father, you, uh, you and only you know what's going on in our minds, in our hearts, uh, in our lives right now. And I pray that those who, um, those who need, um, well, I pray that those who are in a really great place, that you would just be encouraging to them and affirming to them and spur them on in this. Those who are struggling would be encouraged as well, but in a different way. Um, just reminded of the truth and who they are and who you are. God, we all need help if we're going to deny ourselves and take up our crosses every day and follow you. We, we can't do that on our own. Um, we can be prideful all by ourselves. We don't need help with that. But for for that big death to happen and for the, uh, the daily death to happen, we got to have you helping us. And so help us be humble and teachable and respond to whatever it is that's stirring in our hearts. So whether we sing or receive communion or pray or give or a mixture of those things, um, may we respond to you in these moments. Uh, we thank you that we get to do that together, but also it's a very special and personal thing individually. We love you. We thank you. And pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Our communion stations are open. You can come whenever you're ready. And uh, we'll give this a, a few minutes to kind of sing together and um, see what God wants to do. And then we'll close here in just a minute.